Hello one and all, welcome to episode 3 of our Squiggly podcast series, Squiggly Film Club. I'm Ben Mitchell, joined by Laura Beth Cowley. Hello. And Steve Henderson. Hello. And uh, we are gathered around our respective viewing devices tonight to watch Mavie de Courgette, My Life as a Courgette, alternately known as My Life as a Zucchini, depending on where you watch it, which uh, just by a, a hair, <laughs> won the audience vote <laughs> against the other suggestion, which was Dot and the Kangaroo. Where did that come from? Where did that Where did that pairing <laughs> come from? <laughs> well, I think initially, because um, I'm not really putting a lot of thought into it, you can probably tell, uh, I, I was just sort of thinking of stuff that was on the long list. I'm like, oh, we could uh, put up Mavie de Courgette against uh, Anomalisa. It's like, hmm, actually... They, I mean, they're both stop motion, um, but they kind of feel like, you know, it's not... Weird... I mean, your choices aren't... That doesn't make it any better. No. <laughs> uh, so I just went down the, the list <laughs> to top the kangaroo. Um, and, you know, I figured, well, we could give it a chance that we don't have two stop motion films in a row. Not that that matters. Um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, Dot and the Kangaroo is one that we're gonna do yeah like there's such a thing as democracy to an extent but at some point we're doing the dot films <laughs> not not all like 15 of them uh just we were having a bit of a discussion before the recording but they, they have made like 10 um and i you know i i'm familiar with the first two or three and we're gonna do the first two at some point i I've, <laughs> I've dedicated myself to that because dot and Santa Claus, the second one, is the most batshit film ever made. <laughs> it doesn't make any fucking sense. And so I, I just need to kind of... Because sh- it was, like, plaguing me, like, my memories of it. Hmm. And then I finally rewatched it. Like, no, I must have just not understood. And it was more confusing as an adult. Maybe we should watch the first two and then the last one to see how the quality improves. <laughs> yeah. That'll. I'm sure that's the direction it'll go. Just, I mean, it's hard to know which direction it would go after the second one. <laughs> um, like, there's a certain air of lunacy that maybe it would be hard to capture. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling it's probably just like by the time we get to dot in space, it's probably just spinning its wheels a bit. But who knows? Maybe dot in space is the animation sequel that we didn't realize we needed. Well, I'd like to I'd like to bring that to the people, I think. <laughs> who uh, I who think knows a little treat for them all, yeah. I think that kind of thing is exactly what this club is for. <laughs> Broadening horizons. Indeed. I think it was something like was it 90% of people voted for my life as a courgette. So, I think yeah. <laughs> I think for now the decision is made and uh, we'll we'll step boldly into the future before we reach uh, Dot and her kangaroo. But uh, yeah, if you, if you guys have a film suggestion or if anyone wants to vote or if you really, if you're the president of the Dot and the Kangaroo Film Club, then wait until we put it up for the next one and make sure that everyone votes for it. Did you want to uh, come up with a couple of contenders for next week's episode? Yeah, have you got one selected? Um, hmm... Uh, yeah, well, I guess as it's in my head, I could put Anomalisa. Anomalisa, right. Okay, so Anomalisa. Uh, Laura Beth, do you have anything off the top of your head? Because if you don't, I'll 
I've, I've got one squirreled away. I don't think so. No. Mm-hmm. Right, okay, so okay. We, we need something that's not quite Anomalisa. Um, I'm going to say heavy metal. Okay. So if if people want to watch Anomalisa, then click on Anomalisa. If people want to watch heavy metal, click on heavy metal. There you go. Another clash of the titans there. There we go. We'll have the poll, I guess, in the article. Indeed. Uh, we'll also be polling elsewhere on our social media. Um, so keep your eyes open. Uh, okay, shall we uh, Shall we crack on with my life as a courgette? Mm, indeed, I'm ready to go. So, a couple of things, I guess, before we start. Um, this is available, if you don't own it, uh, it's available to watch in England for free for the next 20 days or so on all four uh, with ad breaks and such. So, we're going to be watching the uninterrupted version. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got it queued up on Blu-ray and you're watching it uh, streaming respectively so hopefully it will uh sync up okay but i am going to press play in three two two, one play play. clouds are we seeing clouds we're seeing clouds indeed yes fantastic so uh we haven't really introduced this film uh some people i'm sure will be familiar with it but for those who aren't Uh, It's a film from Claude Barris, who, as with the uh, directors in the first two episodes of the series, kind of made this film uh, on the heels of making some very impressive short film work. Mm. And this, I think, is, at the time, was his longest film to date. I think it actually is. um, That's still the case. I think he was developing another film recently. That was the last I heard, but I'm not sure if that's actually in production yet. But this film was the uh, the the prize film of Annecy in uh, 2016, I think. Yeah. And I've, I don't think I've ever actually been to a festival where there was quite so much buzz and enthusiasm following its first screening. Like, everyone brought up... Like, you would bump into, like, everyone from all different countries. Like, have you seen My Life as a Courgette yet? Um, kind of... Uh, unassuming little film like to look at it kind of you know stills or uh, promotional materials and stuff it looks a bit lo-fi i mean it's, it's a sort of relatively lo-fi affair compared to you know the big players like you know the likers and arbors and that kind of thing um and really i sort of felt retains that well a distinct style that claude barris didn't have necessarily from the beginning but certainly developed with uh, shorts in the lead up to this film uh, and I was just, you know, absolutely enchanted by it, and I've, I've loved it ever since I first saw it. Um, did you see it at Annecy first? Yeah, I saw it at Annecy for the first time, uh, and it was a revelation. It, it was, as you say, rather an unassuming film. But I think that that's where its power lies, I would say. Mm-hmm. I think there, there's a moment coming up. I don't know whether or not you, you, you guys are at the same time as me. You've got little... Uh, Courgette there stood outside the door. Uh, you know, he's surrounded by beer cans. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, it's not a it's not a happy scene for the for the poor chap. But uh, and I think it's moments like this, moments that are coming up, as a particularly big moment which changes the film, where we realise that that yeah, it might look like a children's friendly film. But it is in no means, by by any means, a children's film, and we have to remind ourselves that 
really, because there's a lot of reviews that I've seen from people who are, are not necessarily animation critics or animation fans, but they're film critics and film fans who see this film and are absolutely blown away by it because of its mm-hmm. maturity. I, I would say, yeah, that maybe the style in a superficial way is a bit misleading. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's never one of his films. Oh, yeah, the, the film that uh, the mother is watching. Yes. Is one of Claude's earlier films. Um, I just repeated the trivia <laughs> stuff in Sarla. Um, no, it, it does kind of have this feeling of maybe something for a younger audience than I think its sort of primary audience should be. I mean, I think kids would enjoy the film a lot as long as they sort of have a certain degree of emotional intelligence. Like kids from, I think, around 10 on, maybe 12, um, would probably find a lot to like in this film because it's the films that I loved as a kid were the ones that didn't really talk down to me. Mm. Like sometimes I would realize later on as I looked back, okay, that was actually, you know, that was a kid's film or that was a quite simplistic film. But I didn't feel like it was sort of really holding my hand or, like, coddling me through the process. And this is a film that has a lot of lightness but a lot of darkness to it as well. Uh, We open on this kid. He lives with his mother, who is clearly an alcoholic. Uh, He lives in not very good surroundings. He's been kind of left to run amok to an extent, like his room is a mess. Uh, He just murdered his mum on screen, which isn't improving the situation much. No. Um, So now he's an orphan. Uh, He accidentally didn't deliberately. He accidentally whacks her on the head. Mm -hmm. Um, And this begins the story of... uh, I think the strength of this film is the way in which they handle this death because you don't actually realise what's happened straight away. Because it Mm. could just be that she's fallen down and she's fine or she's broken her leg or something, but the gravity of the, what has actually happened is really like, oh, okay. And it's so, mm-hmm. so quick into the film because we've, we've just basically established that she's not a very fit mum. Yeah. Yeah. But only kind of. And that the dad isn't in the picture anymore and that he's lonely and obviously allowed to do whatever he wants in that, in his room and stuff. But we haven't, like, to do that so suddenly is a very unusual yeah. Yeah. Uh, narrative, especially in something that's meant to be for children. So something I noticed yeah. as well for for uh, for further viewings is this little motif with the kite as well. I'll say little motif, mm. rather major motif, in that it was the kite that was f- soaring high earlier on when he was being a child, when he was enjoying building this particular uh, stack of cans that you know, which led to his you know the, the downfall there. And then, as soon as you know, the, as soon as his childhood is taken away from him, the the the, the childhood that's soaring in the air comes back down to his feet, and he hugs it, and and that begins as he is in now in the police uh, the police officer's uh, office. Um, he's hugging this kite, and the kite becomes this sort of motif as we go along. I think it I think it's uh, something that carries on throughout the film. Uh, Beautiful, beautiful, and it's that kind of um, stop motion. Everything is on screen for a reason. Everything happens for a reason uh, in animation. And I just think that this this kite is a is a real uh, testament to that. Mm-hmm. 
The, uh, I think it definitely kind of, as going back to Laura's point, it definitely probably separates <laughs> the wheat from the chaff as far as like people going into this uh, and what their expectations mm. are going to be. Because, yeah, I think that with that setup, someone could, you know, forgivably think, okay, this is going to be a, a twee kids film or family film about like well the mum's in trouble and she's you know she's she's got addiction and the kid's lonely so it's going to be about you know the mum getting better and the oh the dad's gone so it's going to be about the dad coming back and there will be happy families by the end of it um and uh yeah five minutes in nope <laughs> and you know, he's being driven to, you know, he's talking to social services and you're being driven to um well an orphanage I guess, essentially, a sort of um, foster care facility. And it's the kind of matter-of-factness of everything that's happening to him. It's just like, oh, that happened now. Oh, this is happening now. Oh, you're in a car now. Mm. Um, and I think that's more true. Weirdly, despite like the kind of surrealness of the visuals and the kind of the fact that animation is often used when dealing with sort of difficult issues... This is very much how I imagine something like this would be dealt with, with very little, like, emotional thought, almost. Like, just like, okay, this is the system in which we're going. Because we don't, we never see her funeral or anything. No. Like, we completely skip over any of the kind of emotional side of what's happened. It's very methodical. And you get, you do, you can tell very early on that this officer cares about the kid um and that there's a uniqueness to the situation that he has a lot of empathy for um that's something that's going to recur in the film it's going to come back um but yeah there's a kind of i think the sort of the adultness of it doesn't come from any sort of contrivance of like uh, here's an edgy moment here's an is a you know joke that's going to go over the heads of the little kids it's more that it's just the normalness of how adults are the kind of boring mundane normalness mm. um and the you know, extending courtesy and empathy but not going over the top with it uh not really trying to sort of milk uh the emotional moments in the films and that's why i think they're hugely impactful when they happen and in this film it's comes in the form of like just a, an aside here or there or a little gesture or a moment um some of the the lines of dialogue um that are just so perfectly placed and very understated but they have a huge impact when they happen um it's brilliantly written yeah absolutely it's going to be another one of those films where i find myself lost in it i will will there will be little pauses within this film as i uh you know, keep my eye on on the screen and and just let it wash over me because it is a it is an absolutely wonderful film. Yeah. Uh, so they just arrived at the orphanage. Now he's being sort of shown around. Um, you get a really sort of nice sense of character from the adults. Yeah. Uh, that he interacts with. So he has a very sort of kindly younger staff member who's kind of showing him and then there's the more sort of um uh matronly perhaps uh like manager of the um of the 
of ways. And I think he's just about to meet the kids. The production design especially is quite lo-fi. It's very appealing. The colors yeah. are lovely and the design is great. But you can tell the material quality of the sets, and in particular the exterior scenes, um, the scene that sort of just came before this one when he's in the car, like everything has a quite flimsy feel to it. It feels very handmade. It's very, you know, well-made, but it feels yeah. very handmade. Um, and that's very endearing, I think. See, I find this really strange because almost all of the interviews and reviews I read about this were like super lo-fi, craft-centric, blah, 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 and it was all about how it was like had this real minimalism. But there's not a huge step up on this, like, step down from this from anything else, except, like, something like Leica, where they really take that to the extreme. But this is not that much low fire than, like, Sean the Sheep the movie. Yeah. I would actually say this is higher uh, production values than Sean the Sheep. I think that Sean the Sheep, though, is not what you would consider... But for a feature film from a major studio. And then when if you think of anywhere else that's doing stop-motion features... Unless it's like, like uh, Tim Burton's decided to make another one. Well, you know, it, like one of the f- four major players of stop motion mm-hmm. to make a feature film. Because he, you know, he'll have had to build from the ground up to make this. Yeah, this isn't a humongous drop down in quality or texture you know i yeah, I, I don't think anyone's saying it's low quality no, but i i find it strange that they're like this is a like really low fi because when i think of like lo-fi i think of things like um like much much more rough and ready than this well i mean we the we see such a huge gamut of production values between short films and student films and feature films and um you know i think that i mean i i I understand what people mean when they say lo-fi and attribute it to this film, hence why I also just said it. Mm. Um, I would say, I mean, when we, that film we saw recently, um, oh, oh, Grandpa movie? Old Man Oh, yeah, see that, that's insane. That was lo-fi. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, this is, but this is so well lit, well animated. The composition of each shot is perfect. I'm just sort of talking about like the, the, the fact that there's texture. Yeah, I think it's a deliberate choice. I don't think it's a budgetary restriction. But if you look at everything, every, the amount of detail that's gone into scaling everything, because they are really weird characters, the fact that mm. they have these giant heads and gi- really long arms. But yeah. the fact, and I've seen this done in like student and short productions and stuff, and it doesn't work and yeah. it is really jarring. Yeah. Yeah. But to be able to do that, that takes a tremendous amount of skill to have such uniquely characterful characters and them not seem fucking weird and terrifying. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, the fact that they have these massive things, but then they have, like, tiny rucksacks that are in proportion to their body, but don't feel weird compared to their head. The fact that their blankets and the quality of the fabric is all the same scale, despite there being two very confusing, almost, scales within the characters themselves. Like, the kids' heads are bigger than the adults'. There's a moment mm. later on as well where they where they hug. So like two of the children hug and it's really it's a really emotional moment and the size of the heads it's it's like trying to make two lollipops hug. It's really weird. But the animators yeah. do it in such a uh 
a fantastic way where obviously one of the heads bows because it's such an emotional moment. And I think in, in there, there's got to have been, as, as you're alluding to, an awful lot of design and planning and prep gone into this in order to make it work. You can't just say big heads, spindly arms, especially in stop motion. Yeah. Uh, unless and you want to be spending a fortune on rigs. And from a model-making point of view, that's like the biggest bloody nightmare. Yeah. They've got tiny, tiny feet, giant heads. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's the it's the Tim Burton effect of like, why would you have done this? Exactly. Like, it's, it looks lovely as a drawing, as a model, completely incapably problematic. It's very impractical. Yeah. But a, a beautiful end result. Oh, they're gorgeous. And all his puppets are are beautiful that it's interesting because he has a although his all his characters are very different between all of his films there's definitely a quality in his work that you can see throughout it and i could never quite place my finger on it what makes it different to anything else because you could say it's the texture i think it's got to his color theory and the way he uses color in film that's very different to how everyone else does because he really ramps up the saturation of everything mm. and yet can still do quite... Because quite a lot of his other short films are very gothic. Mm, so that yeah. it's really high contrast, but like you said, really amazing lighting. And he really knows how to light texture incredibly well, that he doesn't get any of this kind of like blurring or soft focus that a lot of other stop-motion animators sort of use to sort of create like ethereal film quality that that's a great point actually i think that's a big contributor to the comments people make about the look of the film is it's it's not applying a lot of post-production whatever like you're looking at the photographs pretty much as captured yeah with maybe you know a bit of grading going on um but there's no when i think of like what my entire job was on the one stop motion project i worked on it was all that it was all going over every frame and just making it look filmic Mm. and this cocktail of wizardry and after effects trickery to kind of give it a cinematic look and nothing like that's been applied to a frame of this film um so maybe that's an element of it too you know i mean look at this scene yeah now where they're like sitting under the tree from a from a building of a scene from a layout perspective that is a gorgeous shot yeah Yeah. they're dead center there's two kind of peripheral characters doing what the hell is the boy of the football even doing he's just standing there (laughs) he's just picking his nose from yeah but like from a kind of picture on picture purpose and sort of showing their like separation as characters and their personality difference even in the colours, like, there's just so much detail in this film. Mm. The fact that, like, because they don't get on at the beginning and he's all red and he's all blue and neutral colours. And, like, you know, there's just this all the way through. Mm. Yeah. I do like this scene because it's very... Um, it reminds me of The Great Escape. They're all kind of... All the characters <laughs> have been, been introduced in a kind of... This is such and such and he's the... He's the tinkerer. This is such. He's the he's the guy who can <laughs> dig holes. This is the guy who, you know, yeah. Except it's about wetting the child bed. Abuse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, this a really important, I think, scene as far as really firmly establishing the tone and just what the film's about. And yeah. I think this is a sort of prime example of what I was saying before of how things are enormous. Things are said 
by not being said. Uh-huh. And the way that this character, the bully character who has... So uh, Courgette has stood up for himself and kind of fought back. So now that they're, they're friends, basically, um, or they, they get on, which is sort of the, the childhood dynamics. Like the first time you stand up to the guy who's giving you grief, you're then pretty much mates. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the guy's giving him the lowdown on the various things that have, the various reasons why every other kid in this uh, orphanage is here. But also that's part of the charm of the film and why it works for the audience it's intended for is because there's a thing about how a child can tell another child or anyone what's actually happening and it can be kind of so blunt and so innocent at the same time that only they could get away with it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And that's how this film can be what it can be is the fact that they are children, they're voiced by children who are talking about other children and the horrible things that go on in the world from a child's perspective. Yeah. And the way it's kind of, you know, a kid can say something devastating because they're not entirely sure what it is they're even saying, but an adult can pick up on, you know, and and under. I wonder if this scene with the where the guy, the teacher, is showing them the monkeys is to try and explain the arms away. Because <laughs> it starts with a orangutan. And so it's just <laughs> like, when you see the evolution chart, you know, the one that normally goes to like from fish to caveman to now. Yeah. They all have the same length of arm. <laughs> <laughs> so we just didn't, in this world, that bit didn't this evolve. Is, this is how we evolved here. Look, and now monkey. Now they're all doing it. <laughs> now they're all doing it. I love the the playful energy to the animation when the kids are dancing and playing. Um, it's really really nice. the The Blu-ray menu is uh, just a scene that comes later in the film. It's them dancing in a chalet, and it's just that scene playing on a loop. And I could quite happily sit in front of that for a good ten minutes. Like, you know what's interesting as well is because with this design of puppet and the kind of visual style this could be, the the impulse for me would have been to make the movement a lot more like sporadic and more like uh, that scene I was showing you doing Fantastic Mr. Fox, you know, the bit in the end where they're tiny in this supermarket and they're just going like, it's like four frames between moves. Mm. That kind yeah. Yeah, because you could definitely get away with that in this. You make it, but it's, you mean it, like, um, uh, what's it called? The horse and the cowboy in the... Um, yeah, like Town Called Panicky. Um, panic, yeah, Town Called Panic, mm, yeah. yeah. You could have a lot more like, jumpy kind of like stylized movements but they don't do that because they don't want to take away from well i don't know why they do it but i assume it's because they don't want to go away from the realism and that's why i always find really interesting with stop motion films that weirdly this film never really plays into the fact that it's animation yeah that i can remember it doesn't go like at no point is there some sort of weird anamorphic thing that happens or or a nod to the audience like ooh, aren't cartoons weird (laughs) wink wink you know yeah does does anyone even have like a dream sequence where like their hands melt or something like that like Mm. i don't i don't seem to remember there being anything that's technically needs to be animated i actually found out something today um i had a little skim of the wiki just in case there was anything that interesting and there wasn't really i mean it's wiki but um <laughs> apparently there was a live action yeah. adaptation made um which i can't imagine you know is nearly as good um 
just by virtue of this being a very, very, very good film. Uh, but it's it, worth mentioning this is adapted from a French or Swiss, maybe? Swiss. Uh, children's book. Okay. Um, oh, no, French called, writer. Uh, Sorry. Yeah, the film is Swiss. Sorry, beg your pardon. I'll oh, shut up. So this film is Swiss. Yeah, the book is uh, by think- Giles Paris, and Paris is quite a French name, so I shouldn't really have ventured for Swiss there, really, should I? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was adapted by uh, Celine Sciamma, who has done some very, very good films. She did uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire recently. Uh, I think before this film, she did a film called Girlhood, which was very, very acclaimed. Mm. Can I quickly uh, just ask, yeah. what the hell are they drinking? <laughs> just, they're like drinking absinthe <laughs> it's creme de month clearly <laughs> it's children's liquor <laughs> um, but yeah so I mean yeah you could adapt this into live action and apparently it was at some point um, the the quality of it it feels like because I, I heard that it was adapted from a book and I assumed it was like a picture book but then when you think of the meat of the story, like I was just kind of thinking like as a kind of first reaction because of the design style of this film, but you couldn't really, I think it is like a novella. Or it's a, like an, a yeah. book that was written for adults, wasn't it? But picked up by teenagers more. I, I don't know really, but I'm, I'm. I think I read that, but I might be wrong. Okay. Uh, it could have quite easily been, um, depending on like, you know, depending on the angle, I guess. Um, yeah. The bedroom set in this film always really appeals to me because it all looks like it was designed by IKEA. <laughs> <laughs> Everything very, um, all the little compartments for things. This prick with the torch. <laughs> it's like keeping everyone awake. It, re- it reminds me of like occasionally I do like dayboarding, um, which is when your parents can't be asked to pick you up, so you board for like a bit. Um, and there would always be some prick who just wouldn't let you go to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Was it you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> we never did that. We went on school trips where this would happen. And the teachers were always delighted because, you know, one, the hyperactive kid would keep everyone else awake. And then the next day, we'd be so easy to look after because we'd all be knackered. <laughs> and there'd be no energy in us whatsoever. I was always in the like the room or the tent with the kid that wouldn't stop vomiting and crying. So that was <laughs> like my every night was just holding someone's hair back, being for the love of Christ, just go to sleep. <laughs> it's not even a festival. <laughs> <laughs> You're 15. Get over it. <laughs> the, uh, the the puppets. Going back to the puppets. Did I read? correctly that these are actually 3D printed but obviously originally based on plasticine that had been painted to get that kind of look. I don't think they're 3D printed. Oh right, I must be Not as far as I'm aware yeah. which would be bad if I didn't know this I, I was gonna, That was going to lead me on to letting you talk for about 45 minutes Laura Beth, because yeah. that's your PhD we'll that If, it, if it is 3D printed they've done a fantastic job of capturing the texture mm. of um uh, molded uh, puppets because usually with 3d printing there's a very distinct textural quality and we're looking right now it's uh, two kids close-ups of their faces being lit up by torches so we can really see the texture of their heads and i would i would have put money on this being like cast yeah yeah um i can't see anything that says it is it's definitely not plasticine 
Yeah. Um, the 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 heads are very very still with like the replacement. Um, the I mean the the degree of like I guess articulation and facial expression when you kind of analyze it, it's a lot less sort of. I mean, obviously, a lot less than like it with the eight billion different faces they take off and put back on. Mm-hmm. But this is like, you know, they've got their eye holes, and they've got these stick-on eyebrows and stick-on mouths, and that's where the expression goes. That's all that's in there. There's no like special things they're doing with the um, you know the cheek, the, the bones or the muscles or for sneers or little. Uh, cutesy things that you get, you know, with all the different, you know, uh, like you know what? They might faces. have been. I'm looking at this Which video now, and, and they are saying that it is 3D printed, And but I'm, I am yeah. for the life of me trying to figure out how they how they did manage to cap, to make it look like it's plasticine. That's the question, obviously. This is 2016. Uh, to get a 3D printer in 2016 of this standard... We're talking about a printer that's going to be what half a million pounds. To, to, yeah, but they would have, they would have definitely it. outsourced for it, yeah. and they're not they're not doing replacements. They're just the head cores, like the head was just three D printed because all the mouths and stuff. Yeah, to keep all the eyes. Good, in so because it is just the one head for yeah, each character, so they, so they, they probably only buffed to, it. I think they. It looks like they actually texturally were able to put it into the the graphics. Which if oh, it's wow. an if it's an SLA printer or a powder printer, they could possibly. Oh, I'm annoyed. Here, I don't painting, know. This. Painting this, the hand business—that's yeah. not three D printing. No, that's surely. that's definitely latex. But if if you look at not so much his face, but if you look at his face, he's got that kind of powder texture, which I would have just put down to spray painting, like using an airbrush. Well, yeah, that I just thought was. But, why, that was why I thought it was like. Casket. But if you're only printing like each of their heads. Yeah. It'll take a while, but you could sand it down, and it would be as good as a resin cast. Yeah, it would just save you having to make a resin cast for one head. So it is perceivable that they would have done. Mm. Yeah. Well, but there you go. I, I think something. the unusual thing is that they don't go on about it, which everyone normally does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah every three D printed film. It's, Did you know we three D printed? We know it. Just I'm trying to watch the fucking film. Just let me. Three <laughs> D printed. Look, it's three D printed. <laughs> Yeah. So maybe. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Well, there you go. I've given you an extra chapter for your PhD there, Laura. Wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Add it to the pile. (laughs) So in the film now, we're uh, we're taking a little day trip. Yeah. This has a really nice sort of feel... Again, with the sort of like, it feels so crisp. Like you can feel the coldness of the air, like when you sort of would do skiing holidays. Mm. Um, that very sort of particular, like fresh air thing, but you can't have too much exposed skin. Um, I never went on skiing holidays, scene. Ben. I'm sorry. I went to Sheffield Ski Ramp, which was awful. (laughs) (laughs) Was that a dry ski slope? All of Ben's childhood memories are really at odds with both mine and Steve's. You know when you're staying with the other boys (laughs) and the skiing resort and the butler brings the wrong cognac? (laughs) So believable. (laughs) We're like, you remember when they gave us a tinny in the tent? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um... (laughs) Well, there you go. Carruthers, this um, is not my smoking jacket. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, 
<laughs> we actually did, uh, we learned to ski on dry ski slopes. Yeah, there was a place in Metzen, and you're basically skiing on a giant toothbrush. Yeah, yeah. And the difference is, like, if you fall on snow, it's like, oh, I fell over. If you fall on a dry ski slope, oh, I didn't really need all my skin. Yeah, I'm rolling down on a cheese grater. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, here we I go. just want to say I love this shot yeah, beautiful. of them just staring <laughs> of um, like it's so the longing for affection. Yeah, but it's perfectly like just framed in the business with the sound and everything is. Anyway. I found a quote about 3D printing if you would like to hear it. Let's do She's it. She's doing a PhD <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> this is how this it... podcast counts as research. Yeah. can submit it. Dissemination. The heads are scanned in 3D in order to be reworked in CGI. Before they are printed in 3D, we empty them out and insert clips inside to, to hold the eyes along with the cavities in which micro-magnets are placed. The replacement variations for mouths, eyelids and eyelashes are modelled in CGI, then reproduced with ferrous resin to adhere to magnets in the head. The heads and all other visible parts are hand-painted. Once the costumes are assembled, the puppets are put together using connections between the armatures of each element. There you go. There you go. So the heads are 3D printed and then hand painted, and that's how you. it still has this kind of handmade quality to it. Mm. But that's a very good use of that technology, because that's not remotely wasteful. Because mm. no. if anything, it's a massive benefit, because, I mean, if you take away all the proper little, like half 3D printed heads and the ones that went wrong they didn't have to then make a mould for one head yeah what are you laughing at? <laughs> because this scene reminds me of something from my childhood okay. and you're going to make fun of me <laughs> <laughs> no no it's fine it, it's not we're not taking the piss we're just saying go it's on. like it's, go on it's Lord Snooty go on <laughs> tell us <laughs> no. well you know when you do like uh, theatre camp in the summer <laughs> Of course. <laughs> yeah, go on, go on, Ben. Yeah, camp. Uh, no, this, this reminds me, they're sort of absconding in the night with your friend. Um, yeah. At this point in the story, there's a kind of um, very sweet, you know, uh, preteen love story element of it where he is, you know, developing. It's not really a kind of like romantic attraction, it's just this kind of very, you know, d d strong friendship uh, between. Uh, Courgette and the uh, the new girl, um, who everyone likes, but he particularly likes, and they've just kind of stepped out in the night when everyone's asleep to just have a bit of a moment and uh, chat, and it just sort of reminds me of you know making friends and little sort of clandestine chats, um, getting to know people, and it f there, there's a there was a kind of special feeling to it mm. i think because you weren't really meant to be doing it and also it was kind of a precursor to what you suspected was going to be a very very big part of your you know teenage years to come uh, but this was a kind of safe version of it um so that was something that i always i you know have some quite sort of pleasant memories of those sort of meetings and so this this scene kind of reminded me of that something magical about them I mean, I didn't have anything as sort of tragic to bond over. Mm. Like, I'm sure we were probably just talking about The Simpsons. 
knowing me, but uh, <laughs> hey. The Simpsons are really good. I don't think they'll ever get any worse than this, bearing in mind this is probably I, season two, season three. I think The Simpsons has passed its peak. Did you see the one where Homer went into space? <laughs> I bet this is the last season. How are you guys talking about The Simpsons? <laughs> because How we're us. Happen? I looked at That's... it for five minutes and we're on The Simpsons again. <laughs> Jesus Christ, guys, let it go. Back to the film. <laughs> the film? So back to the film. <laughs> Um, oh, so they brought the snow into the film and they have a uh, an indoor snowball fight, mm. which is a lovely little set piece. The snow reminds yeah, me little... of the uh, the first episode of The Simpsons when... Uh, well... <laughs> In uh, season three... <laughs> <laughs> so this is the kind of, I think, stage of the film where all things considered, you know, life is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, people have, I think, the sort of... Uh, as much stability as they can kind of hope for. And, of course, that's never a permanent thing, and I think this is going to be disrupted fairly soon. Mm-hmm. Um, this... Uh, so the new guy... I f- forget the name of the character. It's Camille. just put on the subject. Camille, thank you. Um... So she doesn't have parents, but she has an aunt who's an absolute POS. Mm-hmm. Um, but she wants uh, to basically be the guardian of the little girl for certain benefits, I think. Um, she obviously doesn't care about raising her properly. Um, so that is the kind of uh, obstacle in the way of them, you know, being happy together. But of course, it's being happy together in an orphanage. Um, so that's sort of, I guess that's sort of a bridge that will come along later on in the film. Um, I do remember this, that, 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 uh, laughing my head off at the, the letter in the way that they talk to each other about, mm. about what they believe sex is and things like that. It's just, yeah. you know, there's a real kind of, uh, it, it's just, it's hilarious, but it's, it's this sort of innocence to it as well. Obviously, yeah. you know. And then she's reading Kafka. <laughs> <laughs> I love the uh, recurring gag about the girl who's always waiting for her mother to come get her. Because her mother is just out of the country, I think. Uh, and she always, it's it's very, it's heartbreaking that she always kind of runs whenever a car comes by the building and she runs outside screaming, Mum. Um, and then the payoff for that. Well, you don't think that that's leading up to a gag because it's so sad, but the payoff to that eventually is wonderful. And a bit of a, a pathos for the bully here. Yeah. There are there are moments where you 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 do kind of realise how young these these children are supposed to be. Obviously, we said during the model with the models, they look pretty similar size to the adults. You know, it'd be difficult to imagine what a teenage character would look like in this film, perhaps. But uh, well, probably just with spots on them. But um, there are moments where you realise that in the language and in in the design, how kind of what age these characters are as well. Um, in the design of the movements, the design of what it is they're saying and doing. 
Yeah. Sorry, just laughing at the uh, gratuitous upskirt moment. <laughs> to the, the horror of the kids hiding under the stairs, <laughs> looking through the slats of the stairs at the aunt's um, horrible panties. I have a question. Do you think there's any rationale as to why, what colour the kids' nose and skin detail is? Well, I, I've noticed that is an element of his other films. Mm. And going back, actually, to... Because he's done films that aren't stop motion as well. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's something that's always kind of been a part of his work. Um, certainly in uh, Sambab, a film he did with NFB, I'm sure that's a quality of it, or maybe it's just the eyes, but um, there was another film he did called um, Ice Float, or Ice Flow, that was 2D, uh, but I, I may be misremembering, but I feel like that that was an element of it too, and I think it's maybe just his approach to colouring. Yeah, I was just wondering if it had something to do with ethnicity or something. Well, the, I mean, there are kids that have... There is a range of ethnicities, but I'm not sure if that is necessarily. Mm. Somebody pointed out. Somebody pointed it out to me a few years ago that that has become a major trend, particularly something that's been picked up uh, as the gag that you were discussing earlier on. Uh, something that has been uh, picked up, particularly with student films, is that style where you just paint the characters' ears and nose a different colour. Oh yeah, that's that's been around for a long time. Uh, yeah, but obviously when it's done right, it's well, obviously it's led to a conversation here, but it shouldn't lead to a conversation, ideally. But um, it is sometimes just done as as a replacement, really, for for any particular style. But obviously, yeah, Claude Barris is, not, is loaded with style. I'm not really sure where it comes from because I mean, because I I know loads of people that have this as like a style. Or a part of their style, like if you think of any of the stuff that comes out of Rumpus, for instance. Well, if it's used properly for, for, for shape and things like that, it can be used really effectively. I think you used it in Boris Norris. I think it probably comes from 2D to be able to define features on a face that's normally one colour. So it's probably something to do with tone and trying to create depth. Mm. And it, because it comes from a 2D, you know, most designs come from a 2D place, it probably just comes with it and also the fact that like it sort of brings a certain element of charm in the sense that like you know if you see a guy that has like a slightly red nose you tend to have like if you're cold you have slightly red ears and there's something kind of cute about that so it's probably something to do with appeal and a sense of like mm, quick understanding that these people are good or meant to be pleasing to the eye. Right. Like, she doesn't have it. <laughs> no, that's the thing, actually. With her design, she's a much... This is the... Um, uh, what would you call her? The matron. The matron. Um, the house she, mother? Yeah, the boss lady. <laughs> she's a nicer you. character than her design would suggest. But she's yeah. a very authoritative character. But I think that's probably by... Well, everything will be by choice, obviously, but because often there are people that look kind of sinister in positions like this, you know, if you think of, like, your headmistress and that kind of thing. But they do actually have the child's best interest at heart. They're just very... What's the word? When you're, like, really straight-lined. Um, really straight-lined? Oh, sure. 
No, but there's a word for it, like when you're like officious almost. Like everything to the letter. Just like by the book. Yeah. Kind of. But because they've probably way. found that if they if they do ever bend or break the thing, rules, yeah. it comes back to bite both them and the kid on the ass. Right. So. Mm. I've just realised who uh, Courgette reminds me of a little bit um, is uh, Frank Sidebottom. <laughs> and I, th- I think it's of its head shape. The head shape and, and the, the big eyes. eyes, but also the red lips. Yeah, it's that's the the element of it that I think kind of completes the puzzle. Wow, um, I've been living in Manchester for years, and I've, I love this film, and I've never even thought Frank Sidebottom. <laughs> he was an animator as well, wasn't he? Chris Sivy, the guy who uh, was behind the Frank Sidebottom mask. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, I can see why life in animation would. Uh... There's there's a there's a fantastic part in his his biography where. Obviously, he spent his life uh, doing all kinds of weird and wonderful things. And then when he became an animator working on Bob the Builder and Pingu and things like that, his family were delighted because it was the only uh, the only sensible job he'd ever had in his life. <laughs> <laughs> you know you've had a good life when animation is the normal thing you did. Yes, yeah. Oh, he's got a proper job at last. Little moment here where she's saying, "As my father told me how to shoot," and it's it's that absence that you described earlier on. What this also kind of reminds me of is all of this, and there's no shortage of like kids shows or kids films where it's a sort of ensemble group of kids as the main characters, and how they often present sort of aspirational lives to kids or dramatic appealing um stories to kids but not really or like comedy for kids but not really realism for kids mm. and when you think of stuff like stuff like peanuts which is you know at, the, at its best is, is quite superb in terms of how it was written like those are some really really good um comics but they weren't really representative of childhood Really, like the kids all talked like philosophers, <laughs> and everything was a uh, you know could be steeped in something analogous. Um, you know, didn't take itself seriously, really, as far as I remember. Um, but it wasn't like, oh, this is exactly what my childhood was like, and stuff like Hey Arnold was like childhood through the filter of you know animation writers. Um, wanting to convey preteen angst in a very verbose, um, you know, floral way. Mm. Um, and this, I think, really, uh, the, the, what does kind of separate it from um, Recess, I guess, was another one, more kind of a sort of broadly, like, kid-oriented one. But this one really does separate itself from that by having the kind of core group of kids really not interacting or having not having a dynamic that feels sort of put on um and when you you know have this key this core relationship this core friendship between um Courgette and Camille um that in particular I think works especially well mm. and this is sort of introducing because at this point the uh, police officer who originally brought Courgette to the orphanage has taken him out for the day with Camille and they're having a day out and 
it's foreshadowing what their life will eventually be when they come out of the other side of this rough patch, which is that he will be their foster carer. Yeah. Um, and that will inevitably influence what their relationship is going to be because at that point they stop being, you know, um, this kind of like cute kitty love story. They're probably going to have be more like siblings at that point. It's complex. Yeah. And I think that that sort of, it introduces that, mm. um, that possibility. Cause I think at that point, that's what you are hoping for. Yeah. Especially now, cause now she's being wrenched away from this quite idyllic scene by the awful aunt. Um, and, you know, taken back with her. I think you and it's a sort of, though. well, I'm just saying it's an abrupt kind of reminder. It's like, Oh yeah, this is what real life is. Yeah. Um, we don't live in this house in this nice yard. Um, so, yeah. I think we say in real life as well, that, that really kind of hits the nail on the head because you compared it to recess and you compare it to uh, peanuts and stuff. But the, the difference is obviously with a film like this is that the adults and the children are on an equal footing in this film. Whereas in something like recess or something like Hey Arnold, the adults are, are caricatured and in peanuts, they're not even mm. a factor. They're just trumpets, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. So, it, what you kind of what you kind of get with this film is is, is that you know real life. I feel like as a kid, I would have enjoyed this film. Yeah, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit. <laughs> I mean, but it's I not that, it's um, not like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles two, is it? <laughs> the arguably the best yeah. of all the fucking well, teenage mutant ninja turtles. It's not as bad as the third one, is it? You know, when they go back in time to Japan or something. Uh, I only really know the first one, um, but uh, I do remember that Vanilla Ice was in one of them, <laughs> and I was like, you know what? I think I don't like this anymore. <laughs> I think I'm ready to move on to the next thing, <laughs> the next mature, um, <laughs> you know, cultural landmark, the Super Mario Brothers movie. And we mentioned we've mentioned the Simpsons, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and now Super Mario Brothers. Is Laura Beth still awake? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> She's it in. Hmm. Um. Cool. So where are we now? We just had the uh, mother arrive. So is this the formula forming the plan? Like the scheme to kind of. Oh yeah. Here we go. So this is a nice sort of moment of I think them all kind of rallying around mainly with the sort of impetus of the bully character who has sort of come through um, and has given her basically this gift that he got from his mother, his absent mother, um, who, in lieu of being a good parent, has just sent him a, a MP3 recording device. Um, and so that's something that she's going to be able to use to record the aunt being uh, dreadful. Obviously, at this point yeah. in the film, it's all going the ant's way. She's going to take uh, Camille away uh, and she's going to just claim the money, really. You know, she's taken this situation, this rather horrible situation, to her own advantage. She's not been a major character in the film, but her presence has obviously always been felt every time she's on screen, particularly for the children that have the unfortunate uh, view. 
Um, but uh, yeah, this this moment here really kind of demonstrates her as a character. Every time she is on screen, the animation really proves uh, the immense amount of range that this film is capable of, I feel. There was a moment earlier on when she was past that toy by Simon, the bully character, uh, and she was like, what's this? You know, she really, really grumpy. And then all of a sudden she went, oh, well, if, as soon as she knew she was being watched, she was like, oh, if it's a, if it's precious to my little darling, you know, mm. we're about to see the same yeah, again. I mean, this, this scene here, there's a great sort of example of that sort of variety of, um, you know, just, I guess what sociopaths are, <laughs> they can just kind of turn on like being normal and then the moment that, you know, they kind of lose their patience and the real side slips and it is wonderfully animated, the nice version, and then she realizes, oh, the jig is up, and then she immediately, you know, lunges at the girl. Mm. Um, and again, like, with th that sort of limited degree of expression that we have from these puppets, um, an enormous amount is conveyed from just that little bit of, like, you know, eyebrow business and body language um because and it makes it seem very effortless mm. um and, and the happy ending that we're kind of leading up to i think when you're at this point in the film given what we've seen of the film like you don't actually know which way it's going to go because we've seen a lot of tragedy happen yeah not in a kind of you know uh you know, devastating, like not sort of laid on thick tragedy like um, you get in a DreamWorks film or a Disney film. It's like, oh, then the, the, the key paternal figure is dead now. Be very, very sad. <laughs> but more this kind of like this sort of tragic realism and that we can have hopes for things that just don't pan out. And, ugh. and that's been almost a kind of recurring thing in this film. And so you know, right up until the point where the aunt leaves, you don't actually know if she's going to get her way. Yeah. I certainly felt when I was watching this um, the first time. And so, you know, there's, <laughs> there's a quite real sense of relief when actually um, things turn out okay. There's a lot in this film. I mean, for its uh, runtime, there is a lot packed into this film. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's an, another major plus point uh, for a film such as this. It is what is it an hour and five minutes, something like that, and there's mm. just so much, so many characters, so much, so many wonderful scenes. It is a fantastic film. I mean, that was my other kind of takeaway from it was I'm a little sad that we only get to be with these characters in this world for an hour. Mm. Like you know, that's a you know a nice thing about a film that if you you know leaves you wanting more, as the expression goes. But that, there was such. It just feels like we're just getting to know them in a way. Yeah. Um. And I could I could quite happily watch you know a series with these kids. Um. It would maybe not be as great an idea, or maybe in reality it wouldn't be as good. Um. As, uh, as the idea, but that's, again, that sort of thing that's in the air is you just feel like there's a lot more stories to be told um, with the kids that stay behind, you know? But within the film, everyone takes everyone takes over, don't they, in terms of it's their story, it's their tragic story, it's 
you know, now it's Simon's turn, the bully's turn to have his um, his arc is coming to a close, really, isn't it? Yeah. And he's kind of one of the the nice little things um, that's kind of a, a background detail because he's kind of the assertive one. He's he's the cock of the walk in the way that bullies often are. Um, and they have the emotions chart, which is like a kind of weather chart that all the kids kind of put up a, a weather symbol to correspond with their mood each day. And sometimes the kids are sad, sometimes some kids are happy and some kids aren't so happy. But the bully character is always stormy mm. whenever you see that weather chart. Um, he's never really in a good place. And that's part of, I think, you know, I think that kind of goes hand in hand with that sort of need to constantly tell the world, hey, I'm not only fine, but I'm the leader and everyone should, if anything, you know, get out of my way and fear me. And those often you find in life are the people who are the most afraid. Absolutely. So we've just seen that hug as well that I mentioned earlier on. Oh, yeah. The way that the, uh, you know... (laughs) There you go down to it. And straight on to a little bit of uh, a joke in there with the uh, photographs being taken. Mm. Oh, yeah, it's nearly over. <laughs> I, could, I could easily watch like this for another hour. Anyway, be... Well, I'm sorry, there's only 10 minutes left. Let's watch it again. <laughs> <laughs> the um, Have anyone seen the english dubbed version yeah i think that's the first version i saw oh really Mm. okay was that on netflix i think so yeah i don't think i ever watched that no we only watched the classy version because it's in french (laughs) it's not too bad do they handle the voices is it is it laid on in a kind of is it caricatured no no, it's quite, you know, everyone's quite monotone, like the French. <laughs> yeah. I did see that Will Forte was in it, who was that guy um, uh, who was in the Willoughby's, he was in The Last Man on Earth, who's the Shawshank Redemption. Mm-hmm. And I, I do, I did wonder whether or not he would. <laughs> yeah, he only has one setting and it's ham. Yeah. So, but he, I guess he turned it down for this, I don't really remember him. But I saw this before any of that. Hmm. And uh, Ellen Page and Nick Offerman as well. I Ellen Page has had a bit of a journey. Hmm? I wonder if that's the Channel 4 version. I, th- I think Channel 4 are the French version. Surprising. You're right. Mm. The film's putting you to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Because it's so comforting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, look, they have the same bed. I have to admit, I got a little emotion at this bit when I saw it for the first time. Not ending of Mary and Max emotion. No. no. But, um, you know, it, it's a sweet scene. So, yeah, they've basically been taken in by the police officer at this point, and they uh, are being shown their rooms for the first time. So does this mean they're siblings now? 
Yeah, we were already talking about this before. Mm. Uh, I think you're on your phone. No more um, kissing. But it just kind of it changes. I think the well, it potentially will change that kind of dynamic down the line. Mm. But either way, I mean, they have a bond. Yeah, that was I think very important for both of them during a really not very nice time in their lives. I like that the birds are shaped like eggs. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're reaching the end. Any closing thoughts on... Uh, oh, look, the kite's back. There you go. The, yeah. <laughs> I think we haven't seen the last of the kite. No, 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 no. Oh, and no. here's the weather chart. Oh, oh uh, and uh, yeah. finally uh, Simon gets uh, a sunny day on his weather chart. Right the way up there as well. No kind of rain cloud, cloudy, straight up to sunshine. Mm. Going to get the bends. <laughs> I've thought this moment with the kids, you know, asking the questions about the baby as well. Just another one of those reminders that, you know, these are children. uh, As mature as this film is. (laughs) It's also, it's it's tinged with sadness when they're asking about, you know, where will the child live and what circumstances will the child, would happen to the child for it to end up at the care home. Mm-hmm. Weirdly realistic looking clouds mm. compared to everything else. And so here we are. The kite, I think, uh, closes out the film. Uh, redesigned, or rather with a new addition, I suppose. I think the back mm. has... Yeah, it's just got the photographs on the tip to it. <laughs> Look at the one in the middle. I love her. She's my favourite. Yeah. <laughs> Mental eyes. Yeah, with the, uh, <laughs> the little scar. Well, that's another nice thing, is like she hides the scar for the first two-thirds i think of the film and then once i think the camaraderie that begins with courgette arriving has kind of built up a bit she has this sort of confidence back and so she starts like combing her hair back i think it's camille pulls out of her hair all right out of her hair given courgette all the credit it's camille who's the one who turns everything around the real one the real one she's the one and only there's a moment as well when they're dressed up and she's dressed up as a pirate, but instead of putting the patch over her eye with the scar on it, she puts it over a good eye, which I always thought was quite a... quite It's a good gag, but it's also quite yeah. telling about the journey that the character's been on. And even though that character's not front and centre, and even though the character uh, with the mother that's been deported who's waiting for the mother to arrive again is not central to the story, they still have their own arcs, they still have their own moments, and... I think that's another big plus uh, of mm. this film. Well, um, we've got about four minutes of credits. Fantastic. Oh, Kim Kikuleri worked on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a ledge. Wow. And Tim, of course, Tim Allen worked on this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, we knew that, didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a well. stop motion <laughs> film. We can take it for granted that yeah. Tim Allen worked on it. <laughs> if you're listening, Tim. I do remember him uh, talking about this one at the time. Yeah. Right. Well, um, I think that's it for uh, another episode of the Squiggly Film Club. So, yeah. Uh, what are the choices, I guess, for next week again? It was... Anomalisa. Anomalisa and... Heavy Metal. What was yours? Heavy Metal. Heavy Metal. <laughs> 
for no reason. Metal l'élan, as my French poster uh, used to read. Did you have the French? Because I had the French poster. Wow. Because <laughs> <laughs> I am la douche. <laughs> Fantastic. And I don't know where it came. I guess I must have got it in Montreal. It was a um, big, shiny silver yeah. poster for the film. I think I watched it once, so this will... I don't think I've ever seen it. So with, well, with, did the woman on the back of the giant eagle have a cigarette in her mouth because she was French? Uh, may we? Yeah. And a berry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep the, I always think of that thing in Annecy where we saw the uh, the woman jogging with a baguette. By the <laughs> lake in Annecy. It's like, well, that's the most French thing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. uh, I kind of hope... That one gets the votes because I really don't want to talk about Anomalisa. No, oh. <laughs> that's okay. You don't have to, to. If it's a film that one of us doesn't like, we don't have to do it. We're not duty bound. Well, be in, would it be interesting to have the perspective of someone that hates that film? Yeah, yeah, it actually yeah. would. It, it certainly would. It would be. It would be good to just to argue for for an this hour. Is why and I half. hate this bit. Yeah. This is why I hate that bit. <laughs> I just hate the whole ethos. You don't care for. The writer in general, no. I found. Mm. Um, it's fair I, I quite like Charlie Kaufman. I, I just find it fascinating how you can make the same film every time and no one calls you out on it. <laughs> I did find Synecdoche, New York was a tough rewatch. It's 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 gonna be a it's gonna be an interesting week the next time we do an interesting record the next time we do the podcast, either film that comes up. So uh, if you want to vote for Anomalisa, vote for Anomalisa. If you want to vote for heavy metal Vote for heavy metal. Or what was it in French, Ben? Metal Elan. Fantastic. I should know that. I'm doing Duolingo, trying to learn French to go to Annecy. That's not happening. (laughs) I always find uh, Muzzy does the job (laughs) if it's a short trip. We should do Muzzy. We should do Muzzy. (laughs) Yes. That's like a film. All right, credits are wrapping up. Goodbye, everyone. See you later. Bye. Bye.